that all sentient beings want to be happy. From the uh, wealthiest, most powerful rulers to the tiny insects. suffering, to be content and at ease. And they also usually want some other beings to be happy too. Most, most beings want some other beings to be happy. And then bodhisattvas also want to be happy, but they want all other beings to be completely happy. And then Buddhas uh, maybe don't even really want to be happy because they already are um, incessantly and irreversibly. <laughs> they just want the boundless happiness for all beings, and they have the infinite skillful means to lead all beings to happiness. So uh, I think if if wherever we are on the path of, without us finding some happiness and contentment, um, it would be hard to benefit others on a large scale, I think. Be, you know, really attend to want to bring happiness to others. Some people might feel like, yeah, the Bodhisattva vows to give up your own happiness and just care about others. and, and uh, uh, we can be miserable bodhisattvas as long as we're helping others. <laughs> Sometimes we might feel that way or get those kind of messages. But uh, I don't think it works that way. And I think realistically, uh, most of us do come to practice because we're looking for, for uh, more contentment and happiness. And naturally, when that comes, we naturally have some extra... Um, some extra energy to give to others that's usually um, 
energy that's usually bound up with trying to work out our own happiness. So we have these practices to find happiness and contentment. And, and uh, in Zen practice, the uh, Zazen has has calm, abiding, finding uh, a regular meditation practice that uh, that brings some calmness, brings some presence, um, you know, loosens up the grip on our like obsessive, self-centered thinking. We all know that in Zazen, and that's why we practice it. And uh, I think that can take care of that kind of Zazen. It's just like, keep returning to the present, keep working on letting go of our strong attachments and aversions by noticing them. Uh, it goes a long way. You might even say, this, this might take care of 63% of our suffering. <laughs> if we, provided that it's like a really regular, steady zazen practice, it's only like once a month or once a week even, I think it's hard to, um, it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, pervade into our lives so much. It's something like opposed to a daily practice for over a long time, we do feel it changes in life, we all feel that to some extent. But what about the other? 37. 37. <laughs> 37 <laughs> I think, I don't know what these percentages are. But uh, then there's this other aspect of, of Zen practice and all Buddhist practice of um, insight, like actually um, changing our understanding of how things are. It doesn't necessarily happen if we're just practicing zazen as like sitting and uh, letting go of our, our thoughts. It might naturally evolve, our understanding might naturally evolve, but it might not. One time I was with this uh, Korean Zen teacher who was kind of testing me about my practice many years ago. And he said, well, what is, what's your, how do you practice meditation? And I said, uh, and, um, I, when, you know, thoughts or feelings come up, I, I at least have the intention of trying to practice. My practice is to, uh, when I notice that, then let go of it. And uh, I think he said, oh, and then what? <laughs> then another thought <laughs> comes up, another feeling comes up, another grasping comes up, and I let go of it. And then what? And then it happens again, let go of it, and over and over again. This, that's my practice. I thought that was kind of my practice. And uh, I thought it was fine, but he's like, well, well, that will just go on endlessly. How will you ever find like a kind of lasting, a stable freedom? He said, that's like, um, it's like putting a rock on top of grass and it kind of 
presses the grass down for a while, maybe a lot, maybe during meditation or, or longer, but eventually the grass is still there. So you take the rock off and the grass is just, it doesn't, it doesn't kill the grass. The grass is still pops back up. It's a temporary relief. And that was it. That was important teaching for me. I think that, um, that uh, made me wonder if maybe there's uh, some importance of you know, like uprooting the grass. You can cut the grass, but it'll grow again. But if we, if we get the roots out, it won't grow again. I think that's like this, this side of, um, and in addition to the calm abiding side of practice, we have the insight, um, understanding side of practice. That's what we say, shamatha and vipassana. We say that samadhi and prajna. And they're not so separate. But, uh, how do we integrate them? Well, of course, we, we're, there's many Dharma talks, we hear many teachings, we read Dharma and study, we recite the Prajna Paramita Sutra, um, but how are these teachings um, coming into our zazen practice? Sometimes we can keep them a little bit separate, I think. And my zazen, I just go back to following the breath or um, letting go of thoughts, and they have these amazing teachings. And they're, they're really cool and interesting, but like, okay, now I'm back to Zazen, so forget about all that. <laughs> <laughs> how, to, how to integrate it. And then the other, maybe another extreme would be like, okay, I'm in Zazen, I'm like, I'm gonna pull my nose back there. <laughs> have, it's so conceptual, right? That's why we like, Zazen is not a conceptual. So. How can we bring the conceptual teachings in in a, um, in a more and more non-conceptual way? This is just a gradual process, a kind of intuitive process, a little different for everyone. And but uh, traditionally, it is like that. There's these three kinds of wisdom, uh, you know, three kinds of prajna, you know, or Indian Buddhism. Uh, the wisdom from hearing or studying teachings, that's like just getting the words, getting the very conceptual. It's a type of prajna, though. And then there's the, um, the wisdom from reflecting on these teachings and like applying them to our actual experience. See, that's a little different, but it still that happens like in discussion and, and it can happen in zazen. You can do that like, how does that apply right now? It's still conceptual, but it's a little bit more personal and direct. We might resist that because it still feels too conceptual, but, but traditionally, kind of pre-Zen teachings, that was like, well, we, have, you know, we have to do that step. You can't just hear it and then immediately um, realize it. We have to kind of work, we have to reason, work it, work the reasoning with it. And, if the doubts come up, we talk to people and clarify them. And uh, I think discussions like this are great for that. And he, we can hear something new, bring up our doubts and discuss it. And then 
third type of wisdom is meditative wisdom or becoming those teachings that we've both heard or read and, and reflected on. I think it's good to notice in our, in our own practice lives like how are all three of those going. We might say Zen maybe de-emphasizes the first one traditionally. It's the special transmission outside the scriptures, right? Zen is so sometimes traditionally there's de-emphasizes like um, study of the sutras and so on. But in fact, uh, Zen is filled with teachings. Dogen wrote and spoke so much, right? All the Zen ancestors did. And then the, 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 the reflection or contemplation on these teachings happens in groups from the earliest days of Zen, question and answer ceremonies, dokusan, and, um, and just all kinds of conversations. Well, most of the koan stories in Zen are conversations. You could say that the, the koan stories are about the second type of wisdom. People trying to work it out in this strange Zen language, and then somebody, somebody leaps into the third kind of wisdom in their stories through these conversations, the direct understanding. So all of that is to say, um, we're getting into this nitty-gritty, kind of difficult teachings. D Dogen, somewhat unusually, I think, in this essay, Dogen's getting into the you know, detailed points about um, about Indian philosophy, even a little bit, with his teachings of Shrenika and what is the self, and uh, critiquing different views and clarifying his understanding. So, um, and maybe get maybe in this point in our conversations, it might get kind of intense. But uh, let's. Remember, we're, we're just trying to clarify our understanding of zazen and of mind and of life. So we can, um, so we can work on that 37% of, um, of complete, towards complete contentment. Because that's what these teachings move up. It's easy to get caught up in like, well, is this true or is that true? But all these teachings, of course, the background is all this is this is relieving the suffering of sentient beings. It's good to always like keep keep coming back to that. That's what the point of all of this is. You know, it's the self like this or like that. But those teachings about the self are all about um, suffering and the end of suffering because that's I think where suffering and the end of suffering happens is how we understand. Self, actually. So um, we've been hearing yesterday about the teachings of Seneca, Shrenika, he's sometimes called. His understanding of self in, a, um, in another kind of um, ancient uh, spiritual practice of India. We don't even know what school Shrenika was in, but. 
around the time of Buddha, at the time of Buddha, some other um, similar traditions. So, um, and it, they're kind of talking about the mind and the self seem to be these key issues. So, this Mahaparinirvana Sutra, it's a Mahayana Sutra. I mentioned yesterday, it's, it's one of the main Buddha nature sutras. around 300, the year 300, something like that, kind of, kind of early in India, disappeared this epic, huge um, sutra that's in English, and, uh, and it's getting into these issues of Buddha nature and self and so on. So, in chapter 12 of the sutra, Kashyapa, who in this case is not um, Maha Kashyapa, but, but um, just actually just a lay practitioner in Kushinagara, where the Buddha's uh, on his last days, so it's called the Parinirvana Sutra. And uh, this Kashyapa asked the Buddha, World Honored One, is there any self anywhere in all these modes of living beings? all these realms of living beings, is there any self? And the Buddha says, good son, the Tathagata's treasure store, the Tathagata Garda, the, um, the Buddha's heart, is the self. Tathagata Garda is another name for Buddha nature. So this is one of these radical points of this sutra. Often the Buddha teaches, anatman, not self. Here the Buddha is saying, straightforwardly, this Tathagatagarbha is the self. It's this, this term of atman. All sentient beings have Buddha nature, and this is precisely the self. This self has, from the beginning, been constantly covered over by innumerable afflictions and, and distorted thinking and conceptuality, and therefore sentient beings are unable to see it. And, and he goes on for pages to talk about this Buddha nature as emptiness and uh, with all, all Buddha's qualities are part of it, and, uh, and so on. And then many chapters later, in the sutra, chapter 45, <laughs> hundreds of pages later, there's another um, section where uh, there was among the group a practitioner called Seneca, Shrenika, who said, Oh, Gotama, is there a self? I guess he wasn't around for the earlier conversation because <laughs> <laughs> it was so many chapters before or else it was so many chapters. He was around, but it was so long before he forgot <laughs> the Buddha's answer. So he says, is there self? That the Tagada, in this case, was silent. Shrenika asked a second time and a third time, and the Buddha was silent. Shrenika said, Gotama, all beings have self, which pervades everywhere, and the creator is one. 
Gotama, why do you sit silently and not answer me? The Buddha said, O Shrenika, do you say that this self pervades everywhere? And uh, this is a long chapter, so I'll just pull out little sections. And it's actually a hard to understand chapter. It's a long question and answer discussion between Shrenika and the Buddha about self. But here's some kind of, I thought, sort of highlights. Uh, Shrenika says, Gotama, a person happens to cause a fire in their house, but the master of the house comes out. So this is, I think, the section that um, is getting quoted by Dogen here. I think he's quoting this sutra because it talks about the master coming out of the house on fire. It's like the self coming out of the body when it dies. And the same metaphor is used by Shranika here. So there's a fire and the master comes out. So we cannot say when the house is reduced to ashes, the master of the house is also reduced to ashes, Shranika says. This created body is impermanent, but when the impermanent is about to die, the self goes out of it. So the self I speak of is all-pervading and eternal. So then they continue their discussion. And Shranika says, I also say that all beings... I do not say that all beings possess one self. I say each person possesses one true self, like one master of their house. And then the Buddha says, Oh good man, if you say that each person has one self, this means none other than that there are many selves. How could this be so? Because you said before that the self pervades everywhere. If the self goes everywhere, then the karmic effects of all beings must be the same. All the karmic effects are. If you say each person has one self, but you're also saying the self is pervading, then the karmic effects that play out in the individual cells would all get mixed together in the big self. Something like that. So this is how they're having this debate. It's kind of a philosophical debate. And one brings up some points, and the other says, but these are the problems with your points. So then uh, they go on and on like this for many pages. And uh, at some point, Shrenika says, Gotama, you say that there is no self and nothing that belongs to self. Because the Buddha does teach that all five aggregates are not self. And there's no conditioned phenomenon that is a self. Then why, Shrenika says, do you speak of the eternal bliss, the true self, and the pure? We talked about this yesterday. This, it's teaching that's particular to this Parinirvana Sutra. And the Buddha says, Shrenika, I have never taught that the uh, that these six senses of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and the six sense objects of color, sound, smell, taste, touch, objects of mind, are 
eternal, blissful, true self and pure. I never talk back. But I do declare that the cessation of these six senses and the six sense objects arising from them is termed the eternal, the cessation of all these uh, senses and objects, subjects and objects. The cessation of those uh, I call the eternal because that cessation is eternal. It is the true self, the Atman. Because there is eternity and true self is termed blissful. Because it's eternal self and blissful, I call it pure. Nobly born one, Shrenika, ordinary people want to end suffering, and by eliminating the cause of suffering, they may freely remove themselves from suffering. They may be free from suffering. And this is termed the true Atman. Therefore, I've spoken of the eternal, the self, the blissful, and the pure. That's one teaching in this sutra. So there's a lot of teachings of Buddha nature, this Tathagatagarbha. Our true nature is the self, and it's eternal, blissful, and pure. And here he's saying the cessation of um, the, the six sense faculties and the six sense objects is what's called the eternal, blissful, self, and the pure. So that's maybe another way of looking at Buddha nature. It doesn't make that direct link, but Buddha nature is the cessation of all these apparent separate subjects and objects. There. An eye um, faculty and a color, when those cease to be um, a separate subject looking at an object, you could say that's called the true self. These are like challenging teaching. But they're all helping to fill out the story of uh, how things are. The wisdom of how things are. And it may be sounding kind of abstract and conceptual, but maybe actually sitting in Zazen, sometimes our senses, let's sit silently, so there's not so much sound, there's not so much conceptual sound or voices, face the wall, so there's not so much different colors and so on. And I settle more and more. Sometimes we might feel like there's not this strong separation between the the eye, the seeing eye and the wall. They start to settle into one another, maybe. And the sounds of, of the birds are not so much like out there impinging on our ear organ. It's maybe more like they're just, the sounds are maybe just more like filling the space of presence. So that, I think those kind of things naturally come to us somewhat in Zazen, and this is kind of like trying to um, articulate in words the 
the, the importance of this uh, non-duality of subject and object, the importance of, uh, of seeing through the illusion of separate subjects and separate objects. That's a little bit more about Srinika. We heard Dobin's version of Srinika yesterday. Now we're up to this part in Dobin's essay. Where, um, do you have copies of these? Or do you want to have these? Who was Srinika? Was he just a philosopher? Or was he yeah. outside the class? Uh, yeah, I haven't heard much, but. Um, uh, yeah, it could be that some of the, I think in the old days in, in India, that, um, yeah, there were a lot of philosophers, but they were usually also yogis. It kind of went together. I think in Western, Western philosophy, it's maybe a little different. Although, I would say the, great, the greatest Western philosophers, they might not have a meditation practice, the way we think of it, but their philosophy is their meditation, and I think it does affect their lives. And um, sometimes, for, if it's good philosophy, hopefully it affects your life for the better and, and, and is working now about 37% of uh, suffering. Most Western philosophers haven't already, aren't already working on the 64, 67% <laughs> of, um, of the calm abiding part, right? So that's what's, I think, so great about you. The, the Eastern traditions is that they're bringing the experiential settling and, and uh, the kind of openness to a non-conceptual um, insight, and then they have a very, um, very intricate and beautiful philosophy to kind of bring into that container. I think it was John Bach. I can't remember exactly that he said that. Philosophers are famous for building castles and living in shacks. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I like about this philosophy is that they live in the house that they build. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's yep. not just this thing on the hill, like, well, that's how it is over there. But, yeah. You know, we're not going to really live that way. It's exactly, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And some philosophers might start discovering that um, they get more and more into seeing how the castle is in their order. Well, why is my life not like that? Um, but I guess it can't be because this is how people live. Whereas the, the yogis are like, no, it's all about how we live, actually. That's the whole point. I think also that, that I think all, not just Buddhism, but I think my understanding is that at least most of these Indian philosophers, philosophies and practices were all about relieving suffering. They were really very practical. And uh, I think... That, yeah, uh, that relief might be an implication of a lot of Western philosophy, but people maybe overlook it and, um, and just, it's more like we just need to clarify how things are, uh, but actually, the only reason to clarify things, how things are, is to relieve suffering from the Buddhist perspective. So, um, yeah. I assume he was like was a practitioner, a meditation meditation practitioner who also had a philosophy that was the basis of his practice. Because it 
still in India, it's like this. So, Wei um, Zhong, national teacher, Da Jung of Tang, China, who was, um, <coughs> as I mentioned yesterday, a disciple of the sixth ancestor. So he's, uh, he's in that early period of Chinese Zen, and an uh, important teacher who actually Taught about Buddha nature quite a bit. <clears throat> so here, Hui Zhong asks a monk, Where have you come from? And the monk says, I've come from the south. And Hui Zhong says, What kind of teachers are there in the south? The monk says, Well, there's many. Hui Zhong says, Well, how do they teach? He's like, Let's get, let's, let's talk. Let's, let's um, understand how. Zen is being practiced around China because they, they didn't have the internet. The monks said, teachers there in the South directly help students to realize that mind itself is Buddha. So that's, of course, why Dogen is bringing this up. Dogen's trying to, this whole first page here, we're trying to clarify some mistaken understandings of mind itself is Buddha. So they say, this monk says, those teachers in the South say, Buddha means awakening. All of you already possess the nature of seeing, hearing, and understanding. So maybe I'll, as we did in the first section, um, we pointed out some, um, as we went through, we pointed out some, uh, maybe the problematic parts of Srenika's view. And, uh, before we go on here, just to remind you from this first section about Srenika, the problems, um, I think according to Dogen, the problems with Seneca's view of mind or spirit or soul are, um, these three seem to be the, the major ones that I would say, that this mind or true, true mind or spirit or soul is located in the body. I think that's a problem Dogen would have. That it knows or relates to objects outside of itself, like it um, is aware of pleasure and pain, cold and heat, Trinicus is. And it's an existent entity. It's like in the body and then it leaves the body at death and it goes into a new body. I think those three are like not true of Buddha nature and Shranika has those views so now I think this next section here um, that we're reading now is even a little more subtle to me it sounds a little better than the Shranika view above but there's still here's maybe some subtle problems as we go through it so all of you possess the nature of seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing. I would say maybe it's a little problematic to say possess. You have or you possess this nature. Um, even though the sutras in the Buddha nature tradition do often speak of all sentient beings have Buddha nature. But uh, Dogen 
famously in his Shogogenzer essay called Buddha Nature, quotes this Parinirvana Sutra, uh, which says, actually, he, interestingly, Dogen quotes the line in chapter 12 that, um, that, uh, that I read earlier. All sentient beings have the Buddha nature. Because we have the Chinese down here for the sutra, and it's exactly the same in the Buddha nature essay. Isai shujo shitsu busho. Literally, like, all sentient beings completely have Buddha nature. So Dogen reads that same line of Chinese slightly differently because this character, U, which means um, in Chinese, Dogen's actually playing with his own language here. U can mean either to be or to have. So it's kind of like, depends on context. And here, most people would understand, um, we don't have the Sanskrit of the sutra anymore. People understand it to be all sentient beings who have Buddha nature. Dogen shifts that to interpret that who as to be. So all sentient beings entire, in their entirety are Buddha nature. And this is like his non-dual um, if Dogen's so into non-duality, I think that's what he's often pointing to. Because like, if sentient beings have this thing called Buddha nature, it's something other than themselves, or some something that they possess. Uh, but if all sentient beings are Buddha nature, that's truly what they are. They're, their nature, their true nature, <coughs> is Buddha nature. Later in, the, in this Buddha nature essay, Dogen interprets all sentient beings as like all being, including non-sentient appearances. Everything is just Buddha nature, or we could say everything is an expression of Buddha nature. Uh, so, uh, this, as this sutra looks like it says all beings have Buddha nature, Dogen works that a little bit into all beings are Buddha nature. But here we have this, uh, this line, all of you already possess the nature of seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing. So maybe it's just to say possess, I think is a little bit, um, a little bit off from Dobie's point of view and from Kui Jong's point of view. This nature can cause you to raise your eyebrows and wink. It functions in the past and future. It fills your body. That's a little, that's a little problematic from how I would understand it. If, if, again, if we say it fills your body, it sounds like some sort of substance or um, um, subtle energy that's, that's pervading your body rather than it's completely unlocated, ungraspable, like space. We might say space pervades our body, but it sounds a little different here. This, this true nature fills your body. I would say, again, 
if we want to talk about the relationship of this true nature and the body, I would shift it a little bit the other way to say that um, uh, the body uh, fills nature. Fills. This is kind of like the body. Um, it's like the nature is inside. Is in the body. I think if we reverse it and say the body means the experience of physical sensations and sights, sounds of body. All these are in awareness, rather than awareness is in the body. See how that is more experientially. The spacious, ungraspable, boundless mind nature is um, filled with lots, isn't it? <laughs> the space is filled with colors and sounds, and for eating it's filled with tastes, and uh, it's filled with sensations right now that we call, these sensations that we call the body. It's filled with the body rather than uh, it's filling the body. In fact, the body, body the, I think this is a nice meditation in itself to, um, to um, open to what we call our body as being just a, a kind of amorphous mass of tactile sensation. My body is not just like a kind of field of tactile sensation. My body is like five foot seven and like, and like and male and 52 years old and those are all completely conceptual ideas. They're very ingrained conceptual ideas. But it's not our direct experience of body right now, just sensation. If we stop thinking about our ideas of what we think the body is, and, and uh, we can look at it too. But if we close our eyes, I think the dom- you know, in a way the body's partly a visual experience, but, but mostly it's a tactile experience. And, if we close our eyes and we're sitting very still, we feel this kind of field of tactile sensation. And it, it um, with our eyes closed, isn't it quite difficult to locate the edge of your body? If you try to locate the edge, if I find if I try to locate the edge, I go into thought about, about a visual shape of the body. I know my, my right shoulder is kind of like, um, it's kind of pointed, right? And it's, it's like, um, it's, it's over in that direction. So I, I visualize my shoulder and then I feel like the body ends there. But without that visualization, doesn't it feel like, where's the shoulder sensation? It could be like 50 feet up there. <laughs> can, you, can you relate to that? Yeah. It's, it's, this is kind of like opening to, um, to uh, um, a, a, a looser um, experience of being a body. And we open our eyes and we see our shoulder there and it like suddenly zooms back in 
and 50 feet, also I would say, 50 feet from what? <laughs> With my eyes closed, 50 feet is already an idea based on, again, the sense of awareness is located in the head. Actually, it's 50 feet from the head. But actually, the um, relationship of me located in the head to the, to the sensation in the shoulder with our eyes closed, if we get really intimate with our own experience, that whole thing becomes very different. It's like, the lo the, especially the location aspect and the distance aspect. It's more like it's the sense of being located in the head and the body being located around the head starts to shift a little bit. It's very hard not to locate in the head because um, we're so used to it. And with our eyes open, we feel like ourself resides behind our eyes. It's, it's, a, it's a visual trick <laughs> that uh, somebody's playing on us. <laughs> <laughs> Our parents are playing on us by giving us this kind of body with eyes in the head. So, so in that way, we, with our eyes closed, can we, can we open to, like, there's a big space of awareness which itself has no boundaries or edges, actually with our eyes closed, right? And then, this, what is, is the space completely inert, empty? No, the space is, like, alive, especially, it's alive partly with sound of a, of a cochlear voice that's, like, seems to be kind of filling the space, mixed in with sounds of birds and papers rustling in cars. The sounds are all kind of swirling around in this big space. And it's also swirling around with the sounds is all these tactile sensations. That we, we can call that body, but it's not like some thing, right? It's like a field of um, what do we call sensations like Contractions and relaxations, basically, is what it, how I would describe it. Certain areas of, of the space seem to feel like or contracted, and, and other areas of the space feel really kind of like um, relaxed or, or more um, open. So therefore, we could say um, the body is almost like this. This is the body we're talking about now. This, this field of contractions and, and expansions. That body is almost like pervading the um, space of mind. Very different idea than we open our eyes like, oh, here's a body, and inside the body there's some essence called mind. That's like the opposite. And I would say that that former one seems to accord more with our direct experience when we're not in our habitual thinking. So, uh, it fills your body. There's a red flag here. <laughs> if you touch your head, the head knows it. I think they are, and it's talking about mind, this, this Buddha nature of mind, is like you touch your head, that the fact that the head knows your touch, I think it here means knows the touch. I think it doesn't mean um, 
knows the Buddha nature. You touch your head, the head knows the touch. That knowing of the touch, I think this monk is saying, that's our true nature, the knowing of that touch. I think it's, sometimes I like to think of um, Buddha nature as knowing, but it's this kind of knowing as a, our Zen ancestor, Hongjur says, knowing without touching things. When he's describing zazen, the acupuncture needle of zazen, is knowing without touching things. So it's a non-dual, open knowing that doesn't uh, have objects. Whereas this kind of knowing is like, it's knowing an object, a located object of like, oh, I, I, you know, there's, there is a knowing of touch when we, when we touch our head. Right? And I would say that knowing would be called um, consciousness, the fifth skanda, the fifth skanda, um, and actually the the um, you know each of the conscious, each of the five senses has a consciousness too. There's an eye consciousness, ear, nose, tongue. So body consciousness is the the knowing of tactile sensations, and then mental consciousness, the sixth consciousness. Um, uh, registers that that sensory perception and can also conceptualize it. So it's, I would say, what is that experience? We know that we know the feeling of the finger on the head. Let's say that's the it's the fifth sense consciousness called body consciousness, along with the sixth uh, mental consciousness called mental consciousness, which is different than. Um, Buddha nature. Sometimes people confuse that, and people like to mix these terms consciousness and uh, awareness or Buddha nature. It's just consciousness. And other traditions are more happy to use that word consciousness, but I like to really make the distinction. Consciousness, I mean, these are English words that um, are defined in various ways, but I think the reason I don't like to use consciousness for Buddha nature is because the English word consciousness has become the standard translation for the Buddhist term vijnana, which is the fifth skanda. And vijnana always means um, divided. The vi in vijnana means divided into subject and object. Vijnana is always dualistic consciousness. So, therefore, we start to use consciousness for this kind of uh, Buddha nature discussion, then, um, then it has that danger of uh, being interpreted as slightly or drastically dualistic. Dualistic means the illusion of a subject knowing an object. Is this the consciousness of self-awareness that we talked about yesterday? Uh, self, of awareness always being aware of itself. The, the skanda of consciousness, uh -huh. is it like self-awareness? Um, I wouldn't say call it self-awareness. It's usually, it's aware of other I think Vijnana, the fifth skanda, is almost always spoken of as it's a, there's a sense of subjectivity there, but it's aware of uh, a 
of something other than itself. Uh, it's kind of the definition of consciousness. With all the five sense consciousnesses and the six consciousness, all of them are aware of an object that seems to be external to itself. Uh, in Buddhist description. Whereas self-awareness, like awareness being aware of itself, that's, I think, um, how Buddha nature can function. It's a, it's a non-dual awareness. And uh, in fact, we could say, if it's really non-dual awareness, it can only be aware of itself. It can't be aware of anything else. Because if it was aware of anything else, it would become dualistic consciousness. Can you follow that? So strictly speaking, I think awareness is only aware of itself. So, so for example, like from a Buddha nature perspective, here's an object like a, a watch, and you can say, right now from a dualistic perspective, the eye is seeing the object of a watch, and then there's a dualistic mental consciousness that's registering it. Yes, there's looking at a watch out there. That's dualistic consciousness. This non-dual awareness, Buddha nature, would be more like um, aware, boundless awareness. All remember, we're saying all-inclusive boundless awareness. Everything is within it instead of outside of it. And a boundless awareness. By definition, boundless means nothing's outside of it. So this experience of a watch is actually happening within the awareness. We say, well, is there a, like a physical watch that was somehow placed inside this ocean of awareness? That can't be, right? So actually, there's nothing, remember the awareness is all-inclusive, means there's nothing other than the awareness. That means the watch itself actually must be the awareness. Mm taking the form of a watch. You know, the awareness is manifesting as the experience of a watch within itself. Awareness um, can manifest within itself colors and sounds and watches and so on. It's an experience of the watch. So the watch, in the nature of the watch is actually the aware, is actually just awareness itself manifesting as a watch. Therefore, what are we really aware of here? What is awareness really aware of? It's aware of itself mm. in the form of a watch. See, that's how we can say that's self-awareness. It's a, you know, if there's no, if we turn off all the senses, including thought, like say, like in deep sleep, there's really there's no objects at all. Then we could say awareness is aware of itself, just as. Um, as awareness. <laughs> but as soon as we have some sense faculties or conceptuality or even dreams at night, then awareness is aware of itself in the form of images and sounds. And so strictly speaking, there's nothing but self-awareness. Awareness can only be aware of itself. You can't say there's a non-dual awareness that's aware of, of sounds that are somehow apart from it. That, that's called, if, we, if, we, if it starts to slip into that, that's what we call dualistic consciousness. You follow? I'm hung up on the very first thing that we talked about, where the Buddha said that the cessation of 
the skandhas, right? Well, yeah, it's the same thing as the six sense faculties. It's the Atma. And the, it's the Atma, yeah. yeah. So this is kind of, is that... It goes together with the steward. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think it fits together nicely. Um, so we might think when we hear that, it's the cessation of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, it's the cessation of color, sounds, now. We might sound like, that sounds like a death. Yeah. Right, when we first hear it. But, um, but the Buddha doesn't seem dead, right? So, um, what is that? What is cessation of the you know, five skandhas and the, and the six sense faculties and the six sense, sense objects? Could it be that that cessation is just what we're talking about here? It just, it still appears as a color, black and white object, right? Um, but that's, this is not really color, according to um, Buddha nature or uh, the, um, the true self. The true, similar like the wa, <laughs> true self is another name. The, uh, this Atman is another name I would propose for this boundless, ungraspable awareness. So we say, um, if that's called Buddha nature, then we say, this is called Buddha nature. Yeah, that's so. It, it looks, I know it looks like colors. <laughs> and, and, men, and the mental faculty will put the, put the shape together as, uh, as something called a watch. But, uh, you know, other, other Buddhist traditions are a little easier when they just say it's emptiness. But this one's so far out. So <laughs> this is actually Buddha nature manifesting as um, expressing itself as uh, what we call a watch in different colors. That's, uh, that's appearing within Buddha nature. What is, what is, we could say, what is the nature of this experience of, um, of this object? And the true nature of it is um, Buddha nature. And uh, that, uh, and it's also called the self. Want to know what the Atman is? <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? This is myself. I think it's why, so why, why bring in this terminology of Atman and self? Um, why bother with that? Is it just because they're playing with it, other Indian philosophers? I think it's this amazing, skillful means because um, remember yesterday I, uh, I said um, the self seems to be like this major issue. If we feel, if we're identified with the body and mind and the six sense faculties and all that stuff as myself, all the impermanent stuff, we will always, do you remember these two problems that we'll always have? Lack and fear. Yep. Fear? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, always there will always be lack because there'll be something outside ourself, this is body and faculties, something missing that I need to get from out there. There'll always be at least some lack, and there'll always be at least some fear of I am going to disappear when I die. Right? Mm -hmm. um, when I die, I will be gone. So the, there's always some sense of lack and some sense of fear. Those are two types of suffering. 
So it can't be completely free from suffering if we're relating to this set of five skandhas, or seven set of six sense faculties as myself. But if, the, if myself, the Atman, is boundless, all-inclusive awareness, that has no lack because there's nothing outside of it. And it has no fear because it doesn't die. And therefore, um, so now to, say, now to get into this realm, well then everything, really we could say that balance awareness is myself, but everything that appears within it is also myself. So you all are myself, and not even just because you're sentient beings, but this watch is myself, this cup is myself, the water is myself, they're like the self is kind of <coughs> expressing itself as all of these. So, so there's like those koans that say something like the student says, What is Buddha? and the master says, The plum tree in the courtyard, or something like that. Is that nice. Like the, yeah, that's a good connection to those koans. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing we can say is not it. Yes. I have a question about. How do you recommend for people, um, how do you address the issue of uh, the constant kind of habitual conceptualization that will take these kinds of teachings and turn it into concepts and beliefs and, and not actually realizing it? Is there like a point someone gets to in their development where they're ready for these or do you feel like these teachings are for everyone? Mm -hmm. and that it won't become a hindrance. Well, yeah, that's a big topic there. Um, so, so first of all, in general, how we might um, uh, apply these kind of things. That's kind of the beginning of today, mentioning these three types of wisdom, right? So we're getting the hearing and the hearing, wisdom through hearing, the teachings, and we're getting the contemplation, we're turning the ideas around, talking about them, reasoning about them in our own experience. We're doing those, but, and those are, both are conceptual, as I said. So now, now the trick, that kind of harder part, they're all actually quite hard. <laughs> or not hard. <laughs> That's an idea, too. It's challenging to our usual way of seeing, and that way it's hard. So then the third type is like, how do we actually um, bring it into experience? Maybe there's still some, a little bit of, it's not like there's no thinking. That's what Vipassana involves, a kind of thinking. Um, but subtle thinking that doesn't become too heavy-duty conceptual. So we can maybe even do some of some of the non-conceptual we can do even while we're discussing. It doesn't have to be in Zazen. Like, like when I said, let's close our eyes and try to um, sense the edges of the body. You maybe have like a direct experience. Wow, I really actually can't find the edge of the body there. That's like, that's like a kind of in, that's like direct information. So we want to be able to confirm all of these things in our experience and not leave it as mere theory. And I think we can. I, I, I try to speak in a, in a way that these things are, um, we can try out and um, test in our own ordinary experience. And when I say things which I want to regret, saying, yesterday I started telling the story of maybe first there was a big awareness and then it started manifesting as planets and stuff. That we can't test that kind of thing. So I don't know. I apologize for that. 
talented as far as who it is I don't think we're talking about. <laughs> and I think I'll, I'll tell you later, too, why I think that was a problematic story. <laughs> so, so I think we can, we can um, let's not take it as beliefs. Even the Buddha said, he offers all these teachings, right? But he says, don't just believe what I say. Do please listen to them and then check it out in your own experience. And if it doesn't accord, then um, you can reject it. So it's a little interesting. So don't just take it on blind faith, believe what I say. But also, don't just ignore everything I say. Just I'm just having my own experience. Because these are like, that's the whole point of Dharma. Is it's like, other, others' experiences are like conveyed in a way that we try it this way. And we try to do it through words that are so clunky. And then you, the other part of your question about um, at least for everyone, or is it at only at a certain stage? I think that that is an issue. And um, so sometimes I love these teachings so much that I can't help <laughs> it starts coming out of me, right? Like that. Um, sometimes I feel like, eh, maybe it's, you know, very new to practice, it's maybe too conceptual or something. So it's hard for me to tell sometimes because I'm so used to thinking about this kind of thing. But um, and I think if that's the case, if it feels like this is just way confusing, then I'd say when you go back to zazen, just let go of all of it and um, and just be present. Because we need this a basis of, of settledness and stillness to be able to deal with this kind of <laughs> and. Um, related to that question. In this Mahaparinirvana Sutra, I think there was there was some some um, feeling of the people who wrote the sutra, it's attributed to the Buddha, that this might be like pretty radical and kind of he's teaching about a true self might be kind of dangerous to people because they can grasp it. So um, so in the sutra, there's several like involved parables um, talking about this. Uh, so one of them is um, is this story of a um, a doctor who lives in this town. It's kind of like a He prescribes uh, this milk medicine, some kind of medicine made out of milk, for everybody's sickness. And um, the analogy in this metaphor is the, um, the milk medicine is the teaching of Atman. So this you know, sutra was written in this culture where there were teachings of this Atman, and it was being taught to people as medicine for sickness of suffering. So this um, milk medicine of the, uh, of the true self was being prescribed to everybody, and um, and it didn't work. <laughs> People stayed sick, or they got more sick. And then um, a new uh, doctor came to town. This is parable. This is like the Buddha, right? and. Um, and the new doctor said, whoa, everyone's like, comes to the new doctor, we're all sick, and the new medicine's not working. 
and, and the new doctor's like immediately like, you people are crazy. <laughs> you gotta stop taking the milk medicine. <laughs> That's like a bad prescription. So like, I have some new medicine, I forget exactly how the story goes, but some new medicines, but none of them have milk in them. <laughs> and um, everybody stop taking the milk medicine, I'm gonna give you different medicines. Um, to help cure you. And they were good. He was a skilled doctor, and he had good medicines. And so the, the parable here is like, some of the medicines he gave were like the teachings of not-self. And the Buddha taught anatman for a while. And that was a skillful medicine with no milk in it. No atman in it. Because the sickness is the obsession with the self. Yeah. And so yeah. teaching that the self is imbued with immortal soul is the ultimate like virulence or whatever. It's, it's, not, it's not helpful. Yeah, people, yeah. people um, whether those teachings were off track or whether they were maybe okay but people misinterpreted them as something to grasp because anything we can grasp is going to be a source of suffering. And uh, so all these other medicines um, people got, they got well, and, um, and then one day um, the king in this town got sick, and, this, and the new doctor gave his usual prescriptions, but nothing seemed to work. You know where this is going, right? <laughs> All the usual medicines didn't work for this king, and so the, the doctor said, well, actually, I think for you, that you've, you know, you've, you've had all these other medicines, you're, you're pretty healthy, but you have, you have a little bit of sickness, for you, actually, um, I'm going to prescribe the milk medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and the king was like totally resisted, actually. The king was like, what? That's the medicine that got everybody sick that you told us all to stop working. <laughs> How dare you? Give, especially me, the king, that poison milk medicine. <laughs> Everybody's like, well, I think actually for you in this case, I think it might actually help. And the king took it and was cured. So, um, so, so they, I think it does relate to your question, right? First, and I think there's some other stories there. First, it's good to hear the teachings that are not mine for quite a long time. And um, so I don't know if everybody here has heard those teachings, but I, I, I imagine a lot of other people have. We emphasize that um, teaching of, and, the, and it, this teaching, new teaching, doesn't deny it at all. That's the thing about it. Some people say, doesn't that refute the Buddha teaching of Anatman? No, because Anatman is like all conditioned phenomena are not self. Buddha, in these early sutras, say, um, form, but the body is not myself. Feelings are not myself. The perceptions are not myself. The, the karmic tendencies are not myself. The, the dualistic consciousness that perceives objects is not myself. That's what the Buddha said. He, did. he never actually said there is no self, interestingly, in all these Anatman teachings. There's no teaching in the early sutras that says flat out there is no self. Later traditions that would be taught that way. But uh, that was kind of a revelation to me when I discovered There's one time, one early sutra where, where somebody asks um, the Buddha, 
is there a self or not? And the Buddha doesn't answer. <laughs> so, 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 anyway, these conditioned impermanent phenomena are not myself. And then this new Buddha nature teaching is, is saying, this is the true self, but it's not an impermanent, unconditioned phenomenon. It's not a phenomenon at all. It's the boundless space in which all phenomena are appearing. So yeah, that's not contradictory to the early teachings. It's just, it's another, it's a new teaching. Yes? I'm just going back on this problem of fear. That is a problem. At least for... So it seems like some philosophies have this idea of the Atman kind of coming out of India, that that survives after death. But uh, does the Buddha teaching actually say that doesn't happen? Or is it just saying the problem is you've got this concept of Atman, and you've built this whole concept about Atman, and that's the problem. It doesn't really maybe address the, the other question of yeah. Well, um, so within the Atman teachings of India, which is on my list to study this topic more and fast, because there's all these different traditions, <coughs> coming back to these ancient Upanishads where they're talking about the Atman, there seem basically to be these two, two, two main divisions of Atman. One is that each person has a personal Atman. It's a little, kind of like soul, maybe, because I think in language, soul language, say each person has a soul, and say it's universal. And, um, and that's why even Srenika and Buddha are talking about, is it, is it all pervading all beings, or does each being have their own? They were talking about that. So that's one, I think the early versions of online, as I understand it, were usually, or often anyway, is personal online. That's a kind of like the essence of consciousness or some idea like that. And, um, and then this later traditions, particularly Advaita Vedanta, as I understand it, which I think um, began in the 8th century or something, long after all these, all these um, Buddha nature teachings were and was influenced by the Buddha nature teachings. Shankaracharya founded Advaita Vedanta. My understanding of that Atman is it's a universal Atman. It's not like each person has their own. There's one boundless Atman, very similar to Buddha nature teachings. I think that difference makes a big difference um, around things like this death or reincarnation issue. Maybe the individual Atman, um, when we've heard that story of like, there's one, uh, each person has this one soul-like Atman that, um, um, that uh, the, at death, the body leaves it, like, you know, the Atman leaves the body, like leaving a burning house, and then um, comes into another body. It's the same Atman is going on. But it's individual for each person, and it accumulates karma, something like that. So it's maybe somewhat similar to the, uh, there's differences, but somewhat similar to the Buddhist idea of the storehouse consciousness which I also understand that each person has so-called storehouse consciousness that it stores their particular stream of karmic effects. But um, 
so in that version of Atman, when we die, um, it's the same Atman, particular Atman, who have these different births. And, but the universal, if we talk about the universal Atman, that we all share, then, um, then the death rebirth story is more like this whirlpool image I brought up yesterday, right? This one big ocean, and we're all these whirlpools made of the ocean, we being embodied people. And uh, with our individual karmic streams, individual whirlpools, but then, but our true nature is actually this one boundless um, space. So, um, but still, the way that that works in both in both the, the Hindu and Buddhist versions, there is like you never just at death. It's not like you just go back into the ocean and you become the ocean. It's a, any system that has rebirth is like as long as there's the whirlpool is still moving with these effects that have to play out. There's going to be another whirlpool. Like but the nature a, of the world is like being a subset of a big absolute set. Yeah, being a subset. Yeah, but I, you know, even this kind of teaching, I think, I haven't heard it put that way by the, this kind of ocean of world thing. In Buddhist teachings, you usually don't hear that kind of talk. And I think when they're when they're talking about rebirth. So go back into a more conventional um, understanding of because um, rebirth is actually a conventional teaching. Conventional meaning like um, it's a teaching about appearances. Cause and effect is a conventional teaching. It's about how things appear to function. Like this watch is color and there's an eye seeing it. Those are Buddhist conventional teachings. And the ultimate teaching is that this is Buddha nature. And, uh, and in a way, the, the nature of the watch is permanent. We're going to get into that later. Because cause the appearance of the watch is coming and going, but its nature is Buddha nature, and it never changes. The, the manifestations are constantly changing, but the nature is unchanging. But not an unchanging substance, essence, that. Um, some divine being or entity, just like the way that space is unchanging, but it's not some thing. I, mean, that's, I think the main danger in these kind of things, we'd say, are just like all the tendencies we usually, we're so used to making, thinking of everything as a thing, so we hear about the ultimate, and we'll make that into a thing too. We hear about awareness, we make it could be quite subtle the way we make it interesting. That's I think, the main problem, which is why Buddhist tradition usually emphasizes the non-thingification. Like the emptiness teachings, in a way, are safer because they're just negating everything. They have their own danger of negating too much. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so emptiness has the danger of nihilism and, negate, and nothing's real. Buddha nature has the danger of positing everything and saying everything's real. This watch is eternally real because its nature is the indestructible Buddha nature. <laughs> so there's a, what's the middle way where we don't fall into those extremes? 
Yeah. Um, related to the death question, mm -hmm. you you mentioned that that Buddha dodges the um, dodges that he's advocating for death when he says that the cessation of perceptions is the how does he dodge that? That he's at, that to keep people from thinking he's talking about death. Yeah, that 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 he's advocating for that you know you just commit suicide. Oh yeah. And that's it. And I think in the, you know when he's giving these teachings, I don't think anybody understood it as that because they're all using this culture of people in, doing these deep meditation practices where you know before the Buddha, the, like the Buddha learned like the cessation of perception, these meditative states like that. So it's in this um, mind culture already where people were practicing. So I don't think people said, um, oh, if we just kill ourselves. But there is at uh, least one sutra I know of where some, you know, I think it's one rare occasion where some monks actually did interpret it that way. And, and they, um, they actually committed suicide. This is in the Pali Canon. Through this type of teaching, like, like, um, and the Buddha, when the Buddha heard about it, of course he was, he was not happy. And uh, said, no, this is oh, so uh, such a misunderstanding. So and, and those two theories of Atman, so under the one where it's individualistic, you can kind of see how okay, karma would go with that individualistic reincarnation, Atman. But in the other version, what happens to the sort of individual karma that is created? Yeah, so, so like, like with the whirlpools, well, it doesn't quite, it's, it's always part of the, the whirlpool is, the, you could say, the karmic person, right? Yeah. And so it's always part of the ocean. Yeah. But that momentum of movement is like the karmic life of, of an individual. And you could say they're, they're um, it's hard to work the metaphor exactly, but the death would be like that particular whirlpool um, is time for it to, to end. But, the, but it still has this turning momentum. So maybe it's like the whirlpool is, or it's like an eddy in the river. It's going like this. And then maybe um, if it's a rock, say, the rock that's going to falls on our head. <laughs> so this eddy hits a rock, and that rock turns, it's like ends that whirlpool. And then, but the same movement is now moving in, a, in another direction. So it's like, um, and you could say the movement in the new whirlpool is dependent on the movement in the previous whirlpool. So the karma of the first whirlpool um, plays out in the second whirlpool. So that's like the, so that, that's why I say it's a convent, rebirth is a conventional teaching about cause and effect. Um, in, in the like the realm where we think that we're people, and that um, that if I um, eat too many prunes this morning, <laughs> I will I will experience the result in the afternoon. Um, that it seems that way. That's a con that's a conventional teaching. In just the same way, rebirth Re rebirth is no less real than the effects of the prunes, but it's but it's not ultimately. Real because the ultimately real is is just the unchanging ocean of Buddha nature.
it just to sort of go along with that um, question, um, and it's hard to talk, it's hard to come up with a metaphor for it, but it, it does make some sense to me that like actually there's some kind of residue of the whirlpool that can break up and actually get kind of sucked into other whirlpools. It's mm -hmm. not like a one-to-one, -one, like one whirlpool hits a rock and then becomes another whirlpool. Mm -hmm. But say like the sort of karmic effects of the, maybe the damage individually that I do to the environment. Oh, other, many other beings yeah, yeah. have to kind mm -hmm. of live through that yeah, karma. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. not just one other person mm -hmm. that it's handed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, I think it works in the metaphor too, of like all the whirlpools are, are affecting each other, they're not isolated, their their momentum affects that momentum. And um, and yet the traditional Buddhist story, people have a hard time, I know, I know this in, in modern America, generally with this rebirth story, because <laughs> we're, we're more into like, well, they are, we don't know how they all, how they all um, merge with each other and how these, how these larger effects, maybe it's more like that as opposed to individual karma. But it seems like the, the tradition is saying there's the particular um, karma extreme of a particular sentient being that, uh, that will continue to play out in, in an individual particular sentient being later. Whether or not that's true, it seems to be like... I, I found that hard to sort of grok with the teachings of no-self or well, no-abiding-self. But isn't it the same as during this life, right? You could say, if it's really all this like interdependent flux, then we go to sleep at night, mm -hmm. and the next day, why don't I wake up in Mark's body, my consciousness in Mark's body? <laughs> like, it's not random, right? Mm -hmm. We, we seem the cause and effect has these very precise laws mm -hmm. that we don't actually understand so much. We, if we're really open to this big perspective, we say, isn't it strange that I don't wake up in Mark's body sometimes? <laughs> like, why is it, why does it follow so exactly these particular, um, we could say like laws of nature or something? So I think that the understanding would be this is just one of those laws that we can't fully explain. But um, but uh, it was of course part of Indian culture for centuries and centuries of this individual um, streams and I think no and we can't it's one of those things that we can't prove in our own experience. People there's a new book by um, um, Analayo, Bhikkhu Analayo, he's a great um, Theravada Western scholar. He, he has a book in the last year on um, the Buddhist teachings on rebirth and uh, I haven't read it all but um, but it's all the early sutras that talk about how the process works. And then half the book is modern science and investigators and stories that seem to demonstrate some things that are hard to explain if not for rebirth. There's some people like uh, Raymond Moody, who's an American who spent his whole life collecting thousands and thousands of stories from around the world about people remembering things from the previous life and then um, proving some other town or something and going and proving that it's there. So it's hard for, for our, us scientific materialists. 
again, I think especially hard for, we're so used to on some level feeling like the brain, the brain is in the body and the mind is a product of the brain. If we're, just, if we're deeply conditioned to that view, then this sounds ridiculous. It's just some cosmic thing. But if already, if we're open to the, to the ocean whirlpools story, and then um, with all its implications of how the whirlpool is all kind of like a dreamlike cause and effect realm in this life, it's so reliable. The table is still like holds the cup the illusion appears so um, accurately um, then but we know or, you know we're into this into this different kind of view then I mean that it's, it's, I can see how it's really not that way but it really like why the laws of cause and effect and that's what science is about is studying the conventional laws of cause and effect and it's hard to do it across lifetimes. Mm. We don't have the instruments to measure that yet. We just have some anecdotes. So, but I don't know myself. I just like, I like how the Buddhist tradition likes to, um, the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And of course, there's, if you shift it to like, this one person's kind of effects could play out in many other people's effects without it being individually, the various pieces of the of the Buddha Dharma, I think, start to unravel pieces that we're maybe are not so concerned with, but as a whole system, is to me they seem so Buddhism important. doesn't include some aspect of that. What's that? Buddhism doesn't like the teachings of Buddhism doesn't include some of that sort of bleeding of individual karma uh, into a like societal. Karma of course, it does. Yeah, yeah. Depending how arising, that we influence others, and lots of <coughs> teaching about karma are how we affect others. So there's a lot of teachings about that, but the particular way that the karmic effect comes back to the so-called doer, um, it seems to be unique to that teaching, and that's the that's the one where um, where I think that the pieces that would unravel most, it seems like to me, would be the the, the story of the evolution uh, towards awakening. That this usually doesn't happen in one lifetime. That uh, it has to build on itself, and you could say maybe it builds. It still could build on itself because this person's. Um, I mean, if some say like like um, Dogen wrote this stuff, right? And you could say his understanding is is um, is is getting conveyed to these to us now, right? But we're not like a rebirth of Dogen in in the traditional sense. But if he's having a the, e the evolution towards complete awakening is happening from Dogen through us. That would be an example of how it's not a particular stream, but... Um, but if, but we let go, if we let go of that idea of the individual self and kind of accept this big mind picture, mm -hmm. then those karmic effects on others affect us immediately because those others are us, right? Yeah. That's why I think this view actually helps our conduct become more kind and compassionate, actually. Besides relieving our own suffering, we become kinder because we see everything. And even we even can take care of cups and things like this, because this is a, this is a manifestation of Buddha nature. It's not exactly that Buddha nature is like 
sacred, but if, if anything is sacred, it would be, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's the source of everything. It's a total mystery. Um, we don't want to maybe call it God, but, um, but everything is an expression of it, so therefore we, we love it, and it, it is love, and therefore everything we can start to relate to in that spirit. Yeah, there are stories like even in um, Tibetan tradition that emphasizes rebirth much more than Zen of like um, a particular uh, great teacher being able to um, be born as multiple other people instead of just one. So that would be an example of it's kind of somewhat flexible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm so sad. laughs> So, uh, well, let's just see what we got to, I guess it fills your body to just keep going through this, this um, story of this monk about the Zen teachers in the south. If you touch your head, the head knows it. If you touch your leg, the leg knows it. Thus it's called correct pervasive knowing. There's no Buddha other than this. Your body is within birth and death. But mind's nature has neither been born nor died since beginning this time. The body is born and dies just like the skin a snake leaves behind. The bones a dragon replaces with its old ones or a house the owner walks away from. Your body is impermanent, but your nature is permanent. This is roughly what they teach in the South. So we've been talking kind of like the body is impermanent, but your nature is permanent. and I think you can find teachings like in the Parinirvana Sutra that sound kind of that way. But I think in this essay and this and Hui Zhang here is um, that's maybe one of the critiques is to separate body and mind a little bit um, too much here. We've been talking about them separately, but we've also been talking about how they're not separate because even the cup is is this. Um, permanent, you know, unchanging Buddha nature. And then, of course, the body is the permanent, unchanging Buddha nature, too, in its nature. But the, uh, the manifestations and appearances are changing all the time. But uh, we'll get into this more uh, later, because I think this is one of this body and separating body and mind too much is one of Dogen's critiques. So Huijang says, if it is so, what you say, their teaching is no different from that of Seneca, the outsider of the way. He says, inside your body is a spirit. Here spirit is this character Jin, or um, Kami in Japanese. It literally means like, like, a, like a spirit, like the Shinto spirits. When your body is destroyed, the spirit leaves, just like the owner of a house that's on fire who escapes from it. The house is impermanent, but the owner is permanent. Quaidong is continuing. There should be a quotation mark there. If we examine these theories, neither of them is closer to the truth than the other. Um, I think saying this this monk talking about Zen in the south of China and, and Seneca are the two theories. Quaidong says, when I traveled to various places, I heard many accounts of this kind of teaching. It's been particularly popular in recent times. 
they gather together three or five hundred monks and tell them that this is the essential teaching of the South. By taking up the platform sutra of the six ancestors, altering the text, mixing in coarse stories, and leaving out sacred teachings that confuse later generations. How can we call their statements teachings? How painful it is that our school is in such decline, the Zen school. If seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing were Buddha nature, Vimalakirti would not have said in the Vimalakirti Sutra. Dharma is different from seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing. To practice seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing is only to practice seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing. It's not seeking Dharma, realizing Dharma. So, briefly, maybe just say that seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing are not the definition of Buddha nature. They are not actually Buddha nature. But I would say, maybe we could say, I would say, say they are manifestations of Buddha nature. It's a little different. It's saying they are Buddha nature. The empty nature of seeing, hearing, understanding, and knowing, we could say, is Buddha nature. Buddha nature always, always has the emptiness aspect, of, meaning totally ungraspable and no substantial entityness in it. That's what, 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 keeps it is, what keeps it safe. <laughs> to make sure that it's, uh, it's totally empty and ungraspable, unlocated, not a thing. <laughs> 